just re, uh, <coughs> reminded uh, some of the words we sang. Uh, <coughs> I just always love this, this line, why does your love and grace, speaking about the, the person of, and the character and nature of God, why does your love and grace, and I was thinking what a fantastic thought that is, and what a contrast that is to the way of man, because our natural response is to be very narrow in love and grace, isn't it? But God, on contrast, is very wide. He's very wide in his love and grace, so wide that wherever you're at, you're within, you're within range, you could say, of, of God's drawing of you, of, of the, the, the access to God's love and grace. You're never beyond that. We're never beyond that. We're never beyond that place where we're outside the, the bandwidth, you might say. And so what a great thought that is as we just consider how that, that's how God deals with us, with a great width of love and grace. And what a challenge that is in our own lives. Do we deal with others around us with the same width of love and grace as we have also received from God? Anyway, let's continue on. Just <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of notices as we uh, move into the week ahead. Uh, Monday night, uh, we do have prayer meeting tomorrow night uh, back at, uh, at Varden School Library. Still no idea when we'll get back there. They haven't even started yet. So uh, anyway, we're here and this is good. Uh, Wednesday night study, uh, once again at the um, OAC headquarters, 6 o'clock if you want to come and and uh, dive into some bread and soup and other such things. Uh, seven o'clock, we'll start our journey through um, continuing in the book of, um, of Timothy. As mentioned last week, uh, Christmas and New Year, of course, uh, are on Sundays this year. So we have elected to, um, which is sort of consistent what we've done in the past, we will have a, instead of having a, a service on Sunday, uh, we kind of figured, well, Christmas Day is a day for families. Um, we'd encourage families to get together and so on. So we'll have a Christmas Eve service, but it won't be late. It'll probably kick off around about four-ish, I'm guessing, late afternoon. Uh, Christmas Eve service and then um, perhaps some light refreshments after. And we figured uh, this year we'll also break tradition and we'll do the same the following week. So instead of New Year's Day being Sunday, we'll have a service New Year's Eve. But we're not anticipating it to be late or all night. <laughs> uh, prob probably the same again around about a four o'clock kickoff. So just where that New Year's, the, the Christmas Eve service will be here. New Year's Eve, th there was one thought to have it at the Ark. Uh, the other one is to have it here. Uh, if we had it at the Ark, we'd probably uh, expand the, the, the event a little bit more. Um, but we'd like to just hear from you. We, we want to sort of make sure we, we don't want to have it at the Ark and find... Um, some people are violently opposed to travelling all the way out there. So somewhere we'll have it. So if you've got suggestions, let us know. Speak to Jake, any of the leadership, about what your thoughts are. But we'll, we want to do something um, on New Year's Eve just to, to um, bring the year to an end and to look forward to the year ahead and uh, allow <clears throat> New Year's Day to be a day that uh, families can gather and um, celebrate that day together. Keep in mind, coming up, um, I think it's in the notices, the, um, this conference is next year for ladies' conference and a men's conference. So uh, coming up uh, in uh, February, 
February, March, isn't it, Jake? In the, the, the men and the ladies um, separate, okay, not, not the same place. Ladies are going to be at Pepmar at, um, at Pacific Park. The men's conference will be at, at the Ark, so um, more information will come as we, go, as we go along. Other than that, let us continue. Children, you do have a class you are able to head for through the, the veil, you could say, through the doors at the back uh, where you will be very well uh, cared for. Uh, the rest of us, let us turn in our Bible this morning, shall we, to the book of Nehemiah as we continue our journey uh, through this um, <clears throat> fascinating time of, of history in the nation. But, of course, as we know, the Scripture was given for many reasons. Uh, and Paul, when he was in, in his writings, spoke about how that Scripture was given as a means of example uh, of what had happened in the past and how can we apply that for today. And of course that's where we're at, isn't it? We, we want to know what is God's message to us. And within that is, is a lot of historical information. But rather than just being aware of, of history, how does it apply to us today? And how do we make <clears throat> that application? And so... God's word has a, has a means and a way to speak into our lives and, and to place in, into us nuggets of truth that will affect us. Uh, and it all comes down to application, doesn't it? How do we apply <clears throat> God's word to our lives today? And so I trust that as we journey through this uh, text this morning, uh, God will enlighten us through his word, not just informing us, but equipping us and empowering us perhaps revealing to us how we can make changes where God is directing us in our own lives. There's a common saying, <clears throat> we all have heard it and we, we've, we've said it no doubt, that actions speak louder than words. We know what that means, don't we? You know, we can think of instances, no doubt, where that has applied in our lives. Because words really are cheap, aren't they? Anyone can say words, but if the actions are consistent with the words. It, it gives us impact. Or sometimes there are no words, but there's just actions. Uh, and they will speak on their own. Actions prove the words are a true reflection of the heart. Now, at the end of, of chapter 9 of Nehemiah, as we saw that last week, the people had come to a place of decision. Uh, they'd been moved in their hearts by hearing the word of God and the work of God's spirit. They'd come to a place of decision and now collectively the nation was going to do something about it. It's all very well saying, yes, I should do this or yes, I am going to do that. Uh, the real, where the rubber meets the road is when that is actually done. And, and, and here we go in this text today, moving from talking about it to the next step. And so they're going to do something about it by entering into a covenant or an agreement. Back in chapter 8, it gives the sense of this where we read, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and we write it. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests shall seal it. And so because of all this, talking about what it, everything that had happened back there in 838, uh, they, they were reflecting on everything that had gone on 
how God had, had worked in their lives and, and so on. And because of all this, uh, this is why uh, we're going to do the next step, is, is really the, the, the sense of that passage. <clears throat> Making a covenant literally means <clears throat> to cut a covenant. Covenants were not made in the ancient world. They were actually cut because almost always an animal was sacrificed as part of that covenant. A covenant always costs something. And our point of decision will also cost us something. It may cost us self-life. It may cost us comfort or ease. It may cost us some of the pleasures, the passing pleasures of this world. We need to count the cost. Often is the message to us, count the cost of, of our commitment to Christ. It's not something to be done lightheartedly. It was quite something for the nation as a whole to feel that something had to be done about where they'd come from. There was a problem with sin and that they had, they had come forward and they dealt with that. And, and that the work of God in their lives was bringing them to this place of, of wanting now to, to, to do something about it. And, and, and for them at that point it was to make a covenant. This is what we're going to do. But it was meaningless unless people came forward to say, yes, we will do something about this. And so that's where we come to, as we look into chapter 10, we're looking at the physical outworking, you could say, of faith. And so chapter 10 is really a register of those who signed the covenant. Now we're going to be going through <clears throat> quite a, a, few, a few chapters this morning, but we're not going to be reading it all. Uh, there's a lot of, of, um, of technical details. Uh, we look here in, in the first verse of chapter 10. Now those who placed their seal on the document were... Nehemiah the governor, uh, the son of, and, and it continues on all through those uh, verses down through, um, really through to verse 28, speaking about and mentioning names. Now those who placed their seal on the document, uh, as we see it starts off with Nehemiah. Now these people in Nehemiah's day knew what covenants were all about and how important they were to God in, in, in their life. They remembered God made a covenant with Abraham. He was promising that both the nation and the Messiah would descend from him. God made a covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel when he gave them the law at Mount Sinai. God made a covenant with King David, promising the Messiah would come from his family. <clears throat> but the greatest covenant surely is the new covenant, instituted by the Messiah who was yet to come in the context here. And so when you look at those verses all ahead of you and you see all those names and you think, wow, <clears throat> that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's why I'm not going to read them. <clears throat> you can read them later. But there's an important point. You know, the, 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 there's, a, there's a, as I said, a, a band of history that's recorded. Genesis 3.15 was the first mention of one that would come, referring there to the Messiah. And so from that point on, there's a band of history that's recorded. Within that band, there's the Lion of Israel. And so that's why we have all these names and, and what may seem like laborious things at times. But it's so that that band of, that that's covers the history of Israel, within that, the Lion of the Messiah can be tracked. And so Genesis 3.15, when that first mentioned, uh, finds its way through that band of history uh, to Christ who did come as the Messiah. This is the one uh, that, that was 
sent to deal with this, the sin issue once and for all. And so when we have these names, remember this, the nation had come back into the, the land and, and the, the names were uh, uh, placed in there. Uh, those of the lineage of, of, of Israel and, and of the line of the Messiah would be preserved uh, so that this could be held up and the Messiah identified. <clears throat> the list continues on. Uh, there was Levites. Uh, verse 9 mentions them. Uh, there were civic leaders when you drop down to verse 14 through to 27. Uh, civic leaders who signed the covenant. There were others who signed the covenant. Back down there in verse uh, 28, chapter 10, verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethinim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into, notice, a curse. And an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. And so we see the seriousness of what they're doing here. It's not just, oh, that's great. Praise the Lord. You know, here at times people who say, oh, yeah, I, I kind of, um, I considered what, God, what life was like without God. And I thought, well, yeah, I think we'll have God, you know, and life's been great ever since. It's like this, this kind of flippant concept of, yeah, let's just sort of add God into our life as a life enhancement policy and everything will be great. We see here the seriousness of a commitment to Christ. In, in this particular case, they're actually making a covenant and they're agreeing with it and, and they're sort of committing it to it in, in the way that the best way they could figure. Uh, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born from above. There is, there is a spiritual uh, rebirth, a new birth that happens in the life of the, of the person who moves from spiritual death to spiritual life. And, and it plays out in, in, a, in a practical and, and meaningful way that can be observed. And that's the seriousness, really, of where it's at. It's not just sort of, well, I'm a Christian because I was born in supposedly a Christian country. I had a, a, a school teacher at high school who believed we were all Christians in New Zealand because it's a Christian country. So anyway, go figure on that one. But um, there you go. That's, that's the level that some people are at. But that's not the level as described in Scripture. And here in the Old Testament, we see the seriousness of... of uh, the Israelites, as they're committing their life over to God. And so with these 84 people that are mentioned, uh, they sealed the covenant. The rest of the people, everyone who had knowledge and understanding as mentioned, agreed to the terms. In making this covenant, they agreed to accept a curse from God. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Who says, Lord, you know, curse me. I mean, I'm, I'm sure no one would want to say that. Uh, but here they say, if, if, I, if I do wrong, then, then they're acknowledging, Lord, curse me. And if they did not obey the Lord, then the law, then fair enough. They accepted that a curse as a form of his correction to bring them back to obedience. It shows once again the seriousness of their decisions to follow wholeheartedly after God. Many of us have done perhaps a similar thing. We probably didn't pray, God, curse me if I disobey you. But how many of us have prayed, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to follow you. 
and, and we're not really inciting a curse upon us, but we are uh, accepting that the Lord may correct us at times and, and move and, and shape our lives to bring us into that place of fellowship as we move and mature and grow in him. And so these folks made the covenant publicly, uh, though its most significant meaning was between the individual and God. It was an important aspect that other people would witness to the covenant. A public covenant increased the level of accountability. But what were the terms of this covenant? Verse 30, we read this. Uh, the first area of the decision was in their relationships. Notice what we read here in verse 30. We will, or we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. And so here was one of the practical outworkings of their covenant. We're not going to in, intermarry with the nations around us, is what is being said. The promise was addressed, of course, to parents in that day. Parents made the decisions of marriage, uh, not the people getting married. If this covenant was to be repeated today, it would be focused towards um, <clears throat> not, not the parents, but the individuals who want to get married, certainly in our culture. Uh, of course, the idea is, as been mentioned all the way through, God said, when you come into the land, don't you know, blend into the nations around you and, and absorb the, 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 ultimately the gods that they worship. You are to be separate unto me. Uh, of course, others could come in and follow God. We, we see that throughout Scripture in different ways. In the, in the lineage of Christ, there were those who, who came in from other uh, cultures. So it's, it's not like a, uh, this exclusive deal that you have to be of a certain ethnic group to have the blessings of God or, or to be a, a follower of God. Uh, the point was that it was a preservation of foreign God worship. Worship God in purity, and this is how God is to be worshipped. This is who God is, rather than the gods defined by the nations around them. And, and, and we see how that happened and how it was abused throughout the history of Israel. Uh, of course, uh, Solomon is a great example of what not to do. Marrying all those wives, and they led his heart off to worship other gods. And so that's the point behind this. Hey, we're not going to do this. Maybe they looked back, and they checked out history, and they saw the mess behind them. And they realized this is where things went wrong. So we're not going to do this. We're going to make changes. Many of us have tremendous stories of how we came together with our spouse. Some are romantic, others are, might be strange. Once we're together, God wants to make that marriage something special before him. And he desires to draw that couple closer together as they in turn draw closer to God. But if one is not married, it's important to make the same kind of covenant. If one has given their life to serving Christ, there will be difficulty if they marry someone who has given their life to something else. If one is in that situation now, God can do great things. The best thing anyone can do is focus on their life before God. And he will bring those other things about in his time. The whole idea of marriage is closely connected to the, to the, the covenant. Uh, and Malachi 2.14 says this, Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Uh, so it's that agreement. Marriage is a covenant between the husband and wife, between them and all family and witnesses, but most importantly between them and God. 
remember doing a wedding one time, and uh, <clears throat> I don't know whether I shocked the audience or not, but uh, they didn't throw anything. But I said, you know, a, a, mar- a wedding or a marriage is just like a funeral. Because <laughs> someone's got to die. And the two married, the, 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 the couple to be married are dying to self. That's a good point, isn't it? Uh, we do need to die to self, uh, that God, and God may bring his, um, his aspect of marriage into our lives as we commit ourselves to one another and as we commit ourselves to God leading us. When we understand marriage as a covenant, we have something to bind us together that is stronger than society's expectations. It's more constant than romantic love, and it's more certain than happy times. You know, we have that, that, that covenant, and that's in, in this context, was, the covenant was very strong. Now, the second area of decision uh, that's going to affect them will be faithful to God in the real world, especially in the business world. Verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. You see, under the Old Testament law, God said that no one could buy or sell on the Sabbath day. And so here are these folks, they've been breaking this law and they realise that. And so now they're saying, hey, this is not right. And so they are making changes to the way they functioned. The, making of, the breaking of the law was clear. Hey, you know, you're going to make more money if you're trading on a Sunday. So that's more great, isn't it, for the bottom line? But here they realise this is not what we're called to do. There was something about this that is not right. And they checked it out and realised, no, we're going to make some changes. There's a great challenge for the church today when many are in careers where they have the opportunity to make money in ways that are wrong. We need to have the same heart here the covenant before God, to only uh, function in those ways that are obedient and glorifying and consistent with biblical truth. Uh, Of course, we don't have the issue of the the Sabbath day uh, as it was in that context. But I remember in my um, younger days, it was frowned on really in the Christian world to sort of do anything other than kind of do nothing on a Sunday, you know, just sort of do anything was kind of, oh, that's a bit, bit risky, isn't it? It's, so things definitely uh, perhaps are somewhat different in, in certain um, contexts and, and environments now, but we're not bound by that law uh, of, of the Sabbath day as it applied here. But the principle uh, is the same. It is, is, uh, what are we doing? Uh, is what we're doing in our lives consistent with biblical truth and practice? Many of us, as was true in Nehemiah's day, slip into the practices of something that's a bit marginal, a bit shady, uh, very, very subtly and, and, and easily, it seems. No one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, we're going to sort of cut some corners and cheat some people and defraud the system. Uh, of, of course not. Uh, and, and I'm sure those in this context here didn't really think of that either, but they suddenly realised, as the word of God came to them, that they, they were... They were convicted. There's something here that's not right. And many people find that conviction um, and, and realise that, hey, we're in a place that is, that is not right. I need to make changes to my life. Uh, and it's amazing how the Holy Spirit is the great convictor. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts. 
Man was never given the mandate to convict one another. Uh, let the Holy Spirit do that. The third area of decision, will we be faithful to God when it comes to supporting God's work? And of course, verse 32 through 39 touches on this, or really a few of the verses. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths and new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of God according to our fathers' houses at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and our first fruits of all our fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, to the firstborn of our heads and our flocks, oh, sorry, heads of our herds and our flocks, to the house of our God, <laughs> to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough. Okay, that's not what's in your wallet, right? That's, uh, that's stuff you make bread out of. Um, <clears throat> first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit of all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil, to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, the new wine, the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers are, and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. And so here they realize that we have been neglecting these things. And of course, in that, in that time, the, 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 the offerings to the house of God and to the service of God was... was more than just a, a you know putting something in the tin, it, it was actually a, a degree of a social welfare system, uh, where it, it would be helped help those uh, where there was needs and so on. Uh, so it's a little bit different to perhaps us today. But the point is there there was support being given uh, for for the work of the temple. It required people to bring things wood for the temple on a rotating basis to to supply fuel for the, the sacrifices that would be burnt. Um, <clears throat> to bring the firstborn and the firstfruits and the tithe. Uh, a tithe means 10% of the produce of their land. Bring it to the house of God. And so they did two things. First, they agreed to give as God had commanded, the firstborn, the firstfruits and the tithe. Secondly, they agreed to give as the special need required, a one-third of a shekel tax and the wood. So all of these things were, were required to function uh, in, the, in, the, in the temple, and as a society, firstborn and first fruits were risky ways to give. Because your land might, may not yield much after that, perhaps. Your cow or your, your you might not give birth again. Yet the first still belonged to God and was given to the priests. God promised to bless this giving of the first fruits and the firstborn in faith. Uh, Proverbs 3. Honour the Lord with your possessions and with the firstfruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled and plen with plenty and your vats will overflow with new, new wine. Uh, you know, 
First fruits are a foreign concept in a business sense, aren't they? Because the first fruits are before the profit. The profit comes at the end. You know, when the season's over and you've taken all the income and you've, and you've got all the costs and you work all that out and hopefully you're left with something left over, that's your profit. You know, you think, well, I'll give something out of that. But the first fruits is, is the first part of the crop. It comes off the top before there's any cost being taken out. We have all sorts of ways to sometimes get around all of that. There was a farmer one time, he, 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 he was so excited because his cow had twins. And he says, oh, I'm so excited about this to his wife. I'm going to you know, give one of them to God. You know, this is incredible. You know, so God can have one of them and we'll keep the other. We'll, we'll dedicate it to God and sell it for the proceeds and go to the church or whatever. You know? And time went on and uh, the wife said, well, which one are you going to give to, to God? He said, oh, it doesn't matter. They're both the same. You know? and time went on and he came in one day forlorn. Oh, you wouldn't believe what's happened. God's calf died, you know. You know, we're a bit like that, aren't we? Hey, you know, we'll 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 give it to God uh, if it's sort of left over. Too often we can end up giving God that part of it, the leftover part. What the point is, we will not forget the house of our Lord. If before they covenanted to make anything, to make money only in ways that will glorify God, here they covenant to spend their money in ways that also glorified God in beginning it all with giving to God. Simply said, the Bible says we need to be givers. That's the whole point. Not so much for the sake of those we give to, but because giving sets our heart right about material things. God himself is the greatest giver. I can think of a few people. No one here, right? No one here. I'm thinking way beyond here. That are just miserable. You know, and the idea of giving is not even on their radar. And, and they, they have plenty that they could give from, but the concept is not there, and they're kind of miserable people. And not because they don't have something to give, it's just because their heart is not a heart of giving. If we truly have received from God, then what, it's not about what we give, it's about, well, hey, what, do we, what can we really keep back? Uh, God has given us so much to start with. A person who holds so tightly will not be a giver and to that person they have then revealed where their heart really is the New Testament speaks with great clarity on the principle of giving it should be regular, planned, proportional it should be private uh, it be generous, it should be freely given it should be cheerful and Paul says that the, the, God loves a cheerful giver or hilarious giver kind of a strange thing you know um, always have these disagreements with my accountant because we, we live on different wavelengths. And in an in accounting point of view, one, if you've got one and you take away one, you end up with zero, right? And, and that's just the, the cold hard facts. But I've noticed I far prefer God's accounting system because I've noticed over time if you've got one and you take away one, you might end up with 100 or you might end up with 50 or... You might end up with 3,000. You know, it never kind of works the way we think it works. And so the whole concept of God's accounting is, is far more exciting. Um, <clears throat> maybe that's why accountants aren't not an exciting place to go, is it? But anyway, if you're reluctant to be a giver, as the Bible says, you should talk to those who are givers. 
Ask them if, if it has been a blessing or a curse in their life to give as God says to. God promises he will never owe us anything. We cannot outgive God in that way. Though the return is often far better than the dollars and cents. You know, what is the return that we would acknowledge? Many times we have to sit still and, and look back and realise, wow, I've received back far more than I, I've ever given, but perhaps it's come in ways uh, that we didn't actually appreciate at the time. The whole point is, uh, this, this thrust here is the concept of, as we have been given from God, may that be the measure in which we give also. Well, what was like, life like in Jerusalem at that time? We'll look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people dwelled at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. So life in Jerusalem was empty. The place was empty. They rebuilt the city, that, or they rebuilt the walls, that built part of the city, but there was no, very few people living there. We would think, fantastic, what a great place to go. All the space... We've got no traffic jams. Um, <clears throat> I was reading the other day that there's like huge problems with K in KFC. Uh, they haven't got enough staff. And like people are having to wait 20 minutes to get their chicken. <laughs> uh, you know, that wouldn't be a problem in Jerusalem. You've got, you know, there's so few people there. You just come on in. Um, but, you know, we live in a crowded place, don't we? And, and here in Jerusalem, in this time, uh, there were very few people actually living in the, in the city. So they put out this message, hey, uh, come on, come in, into the land. It wasn't enough to see the walls rebuilt. And the spiritual renewal of the people of Jerusalem, now they concern themselves with getting... Uh, you know, repopulating the city. It had been a bombsite. The, the walls had been broken down. Uh, you know, anyone could wander in and out, and, and it was a bit of a mess. Now they'd built this, the walls, but people had not yet come. So they designed a way, hey, let's, let's figure out how to get people in here. Uh, so they sent this message out. The city needs to be populated for it to be uh, functioning properly. Nehemiah knew the bigger population of Jerusalem, the greater the resources for defence and, and strength and battle and so on. The idea wasn't to rebuild the walls so that uh, some other um, army could come along, come along and knock them down again. And so the leaders came and, and lived there, the rest of the people uh, submitted themselves to this sort of system where one out of ten would be selected. I wonder how that worked. You know, the message went out. To the families and say, well, you know, one, two, three, four, you know, bang, you're the one. Uh, did it work like that? They, they had some kind of a system where uh, they, they, they drew from the, the, the population around the nation uh, to come and populate Jerusalem. But, verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So there were those who said, okay, I'll go. And those who were saying, well, hey, God bless you, man. Uh, and, and they probably realise that, well, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. You're going into a place that needs to be rebuilt. Uh, it's not going to be necessarily, you know, a bed of roses, uh, but they're willing to go. There were those that no doubt had some kind of a, a pioneer spirit. The ability to endure a measure of hardship or discomfort as they moved location, uh, no doubt away from immediate family and friends in order to establish a new home and a base in Jerusalem. It was in these days, in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, that God asked an important question through the prophet Zechariah. Remember these words, Zechariah 4.10? Who has despised the day of small things? 
The answer is, many of us have. But those who offer themselves willingly live in Jerusalem so as to take what is small and build it before God have decided to not despise the days of small things. In our own lives, we can apply that in many different levels. God often works just in a small way, a beginning in our own lives, just small steps. Sometimes that's all we can manage, a small step. But like a baby trying to learn to crawl or work, you know, just a little bit of a movement. Uh, don't despise those days. Who would despise the, 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 the baby when it first starts to crawl? You think, oh, that's no good, you know, get up and walk like a man, you know. I mean, uh, hey, you've got to start with those small things. In our own lives, it's, it's similar. Uh, God does things often in small ways, small tiny increments. Don't despise those things. And here, in this practical way, in this context, the repopulating, uh, the reestablishing of Jerusalem was just small things. The, the, the temple was just a fraction of what it used to be. The city was broken down, now it's got at least a wall. Don't despise those days of small things in your lives, whatever that might be. Maybe you're looking to the day when, hey, I'm only taking these little steps, but I want to take these big steps. Well, don't despise where you're at now. Just take that little step. Let God develop as you go. To live in Jerusalem, you had to reorder your view of material things. There's certain things you had to give up um, to move. To live there, you had to rearrange your social priorities, no doubt, leaving behind some friends and family. You also had to have a mind to endure the problems uh, in the city. It had been a ghost town for 70-odd years or more. Now it's slightly rebuilt, somewhat populated. Still a ghost town, though. It didn't look that glamorous. It needed work. And to live in Jerusalem, you also had to live knowing you were a target of the enemy. You see, there were strong walls to protect you, but since Jerusalem was now a, uh, a notable city with rebuilt walls once again, the fear was even more from armies and bands of robbers that would come. The old village was nice, but n not in much danger from the armies. Now you've moved to this place of Jerusalem, suddenly it'll be in the sights of the enemy. Often when God is moving us in our lives, we're moving forward. We move from that place where we kind of felt it was sort of secure and familiar to a new step in our lives where perhaps we are more exposed to the enemy. That's a constant that we can have, a constant experience. But God is greater than that, but often it comes at a cost as God moves us forward in our lives. The Bible tells us there is a city coming down from heaven to earth, when God is done with this earth, as we know, it called that city New Jerusalem. People don't want to be citizens of the New Jerusalem for the same reasons many don't want to be citizens of Nehemiah Jerusalem. The old life, the old ways, disbelief, the cost is too great for some. We want to just live out in the old village. We don't want to move into that new place. We can do the same in our own lives, can't we? We want to just be comfortable where we uh, comfortable with the old ways. The new ways are too, too challenging. As we move forward, as God leads us, uh, often we do find challenging times and we do find uh, ourselves perhaps looking back and saying, well, oh, I wish I was just back there, you know, it was comfortable. But as God moves us in our lives, it's towards growth and maturing and fruitfulness. 
There was a register of those who were living in Jerusalem and in Judea, and it, it moves from uh, verses um, <clears throat> 3 down to 24. Uh, these are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem. Uh, and it continues on. There's a whole lot of names there. Uh, that's where I got the heads from. Uh, so all of these people here, there's, there's a list uh, that continues on. This is an extensive list that includes tribal leaders, uh, it, it includes military men, it includes priests, Levites, gatekeepers, civil and royal servants. All of these folks, these notable men and their families, took the lead by choosing to settle into Jerusalem. And so that whole passage uh, deals with that, verse 3 through to verse 24. Uh, there was a lot of technical detail, a lot of names mentioned in there, uh, which I'm not going to uh, go through. Uh, but these people chose... And they took the lead by settling. Verse 25 and 36 to 36, Jewish villages and towns throughout Judea. And as for all the villages with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in uh, Kirjath Arba with its villages. And it continues on through down to verse 36, mentioning places and villages where people had come from. Now that's a decent group of folks, isn't it, in Jerusalem? They've all arrived, they've come from far and wide, they've, they've, they've heard the cry. Come, you know, the borders are open, aren't they? And uh, people are saying, hey, come, we need more workers. You know, KFC, we need more workers. Come from where, somewhere in the world. We've got to get people in here. Uh, so perhaps in a similar way back here in Jerusalem, now the city was rebuilt. People had sort of kept away because why would you want to go there? Now the city is rebuilt. Well, the, the, the part of it, at least the walls are now rebuilt. People are coming in. They're establishing their lives in Jerusalem once again. What are they going to do? What are they going to do when they get there? Look what we read in verse 12. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. And so uh, what we have here is priests. Uh, we're not going to read all of those uh, verses down to verse 11. Uh, the priests that came in the days of Zerubbabel, the high priest, we, we worked through, through that uh, earlier. Uh, verse 12 to 21, priests in the days, the days of Joachim. Uh, and then down to verse 22, Levites during the reign of Darius the Persian. And so you see how it goes back through history, various periods of time, people who came to Jerusalem. There's a lot of names and technical uh, information there. It's important that records were kept, uh, as mentioned before. So the, the line of the nation is recorded through which would come the Messiah. All these names and people uh, is part of that. It's a bit like when you're, you're following a map and you've, and you've got a map, you're going from, you know, <coughs> Timbuktu to Taipei, uh, and, and you've, you've got the map, right? And you've taken a highlighter, and you've highlighted the route you're taking. So there you are, you're driving along on the route, you're watching it, um, you're not taking your eyes off the road, of course, but you're, you're, you're keeping a good eye on things. There's all this sort of stuff happening around you, uh, either side of, of the route that you're taking, there's, there's places you go and pass, there's... You know, lookouts over there. If you go up that road, you, there's all these exciting things to do. Uh, but you're, you're continuing on this journey. But you're, you're not necessarily, you know, ignoring everything else that's going on. You're aware of it, but it's not important because you're trying to get to Taihapi. You're trying to get away from Timbuktu. You want to get to Taihapi. And so you're following this route, and it's a little bit like that. The Old Testament, is, you know, Scripture follows the line of the Messiah, and it's pointing to Christ. And so there's all these things, other things happening in history, 
in the history of the nation and other such, but there's this, 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 this highlighted route that's following uh, Christ, and, and, and that's why we have all these names. And so they get down to verse 27, look what we have. Now at the dedication of the wall. And so all these people have arrived, the names, places they've come from, it's all, all mentioned here. We get down to verse 27. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. All the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophilites, Tophetites, Tophetites. Where do you come from? Well, I come from, how do you say that? Netoph. I come from Netophtah, so I'm a Nephetite. Uh, they come from the, the countryside around there, from the house of Gilgal and from the, the fields of Geba, Azmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. And so the Levites had many responsibilities in the life and the worship of Israel. One of the most important jobs they had was to lead the people in worship and praise to God. Now, mostly they did not sing without musical instruments. And here are specifically mentioned instruments, cymbals, stringed instruments and harps. There are at least 22 different musical instruments mentioned in the Bible, including the harp, the lyre, which is an ancient guitar, the horns, trumpets, flutes, tambourines, drums, cymbals, bells. Interesting that, the, that only in the Old Testament are musical instruments mentioned. And for that reason, there's one denomination I can think of, I won't mention who it is in case they've changed their view, but I know for as long as I can remember, they won't use instruments in church because they're not mentioned in the New Testament. Something more widespread was the belief that certain instruments were of the devil. You got drums? You got drums in the church? Yeah, well, you're all, you know, worshipping Satan, obviously. You know, that was sort of the extremes. Uh, or guitars, can't have that. Uh, and, and all through church history, there's, there's been these things. In, in more recent times, uh, you know, especially in the, in the 70s, in the, the uh, um, Christian music changed a lot. In come all these instruments and, well, the place erupted. It's been said that uh, you've all heard of the Hammond organ, haven't you? Yeah? The Hammond organ uh, was in, invented back in the, I think the 30s or the 40s. And it was primarily targeted for churches. Now, I believe, well, I haven't been able to confirm it, but knowing a, a little bit about the history of the, of, the, of, of the whole thing, it would kind of be consistent that the guy who invented it, Mr. Hammond, actually, he, he wanted a, an, an organ specifically for church use because you know, he wasn't so sure about some of the other instruments. So here's a nice... Uh, organ that can be used, and it was sort of used initially to replace the pipe organs, you know, those big things. And so this was all very good, but what's fascinating is that as time went on, uh, 
The Hammond organ, man, that was hooked onto by the rock stars, the rock and roll bands, and, and every man and, and his dog, they've realised that these Hammond organs are fantastic. And so uh, they were really hit the, hit the rock and roll stage big time. And, and I'm not sure whether Mr Hammond was rolling in his grave thinking, man, this is not how it was meant to be. But the point is, um, an instrument is just that, isn't it? It's an instrument. Some things can be made a big deal of, but in the end, worship comes from the heart, regardless of the instrument or the lack of. The Levites were spe specially appointed to use the instruments to lead people in worshipping God through singing. They had appointed singers. They were a close-knit bond in those days. Families and, and, and stuff would, would come together. And since the job of these singers was to lead the people in worship, they had to be good singers. Now, that's one of the great things, isn't it? If you're going to lead people in worship, at least be able to sing. Uh, but more importantly, they had to be people of worship themselves. The whole subject of worship and music in church can be, and is a very contentious issue amongst Christians, or amongst some Christians, which is very sad. For us here, Calvary Chapel, our focus really is on Christ. Now, whether the song is 300 years old or three days old, isn't the point. Old or new, both can be equally off track or equally on board. Songs are chosen here for what they say and what they communicate. And the use of any song doesn't necessarily mean we endorse or otherwise the songwriter or publisher. There is a huge difference between being a great singer and being a great leader of songs to worship God. Worship should be excellent, but it isn't entertainment. The goal isn't to necessarily generate a good feeling, though that may happen, but to give glory and honour to God. Talk to any musician, especially if someone who's been in the professional world, they know how easy it is to manipulate people through music. You can make people just about do anything by music, making them feel good. And, and, and it's a, it, there's a psychology involved. You get people feeling good and get those levels of emotion up. Then you can kind of manipulate and move people about in all sorts of ways. So it's something that we seek not to do. But we do seek those who lead us in worship to worship God themselves through songs that are sound. The rest of us can follow along. And, and I believe that's exactly what was happening here. The verse 30, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people, the gates, the wall. Uh, they couldn't effectively lead the people in worship uh, until all of this has happened. We see here the personal application of the lordship of Christ in their lives. People, you know, can often elevate areas of ministry, but it's this great saying, God's more interested in the minister than the ministry. Whatever ministry you're involved in, God's more interested in us personally. He can... Re recreate or create the ministry that's going on easily in his own abilities but he wants our hearts we see here it starts here with those who are leading the worship they brought cleansing to the people by the way the bible said to knowing that the only a purified people could really worship and praise god some might silently object and hear and say well i know a person who goes to church seems to be sort of you know lost in this beautiful praise and worship to God, and, but their life is rather than pure outside the church. It seems that they're worshipping God, but are personally off track. And sometimes 
Something is wrong there, you know. Our worship should firstly happen in our own hearts. It's got to happen within before it can move out. Without purity, we can't worship God in spirit and in truth, as Jesus says in John. And in the Psalms we read, who, he, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And it means it is a sense of bringing praise to God. So who can really do that? Well, none of us truly can do it. None of us can really say, well, I have absolutely pure heart, so I'm qualified. What it does say is that, well, Lord, I need your help because I can't do it myself. But we can be made pure and clean before God today, right now, by doing what Scripture says. Not in following the Old Testament ceremony, but 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some have called that the Christian's bar of soap. But the point is, if we confess our sins, the whole idea of confession is firstly, it's an agreement that, well, yeah, there is something I need to get right. And as that confession is made to God, he is faithful. And he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Remember, this was written to Christians. The gates and the wall, they were also purified as mentioned here. Verse 31, we read this. So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two teams, two large thanksgiving choirs. And so I'm not going to read the rest of the verses down to 43. They went around the wall playing and singing. And so one group went one way and one went the other. They're up on the walls, they're moving around, they're playing their instruments, they're banging their drums, whatever, their cymbals, and they're singing and praising God. So you got this dedication uh, these two groups that are moving around the top of the city walls. We get down to verse 40, we read this. So the two thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God, likewise I and half of the rulers with me. And so they've come to this point now, they've gone around the walls, so now back to the, to the house of God, uh, and the singers, verse 42, sang loudly with a Jezehiah, the director, also that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The woman and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. And so here these thanksgiving choirs came around. The praise and worship uh, was a strong element of thanksgiving to God for what he had done. They sang loudly. And notice God made them rejoice with great joy. God did this with the choirs assembled and the people all spread about. They were overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving, considering all God had done. See, here's the point, is, is joy and thanksgiving to God. They weren't saying, man, that's very cool the way you played that drum or the way you hit those cymbals. And their, their focus was on what God had done. And that's the point, truly, of what worship's about. It's not necessarily how we do the worship. It's what's the object of worship? Is the object of worship Christ? Then I use a drum or use a guitar or use nothing at all it doesn't really matter but the point is Christ must be the object of worship and so we need to focus our worship and, and that's what was happening here the singers sang loudly what a great thought the woman and children noticed they rejoiced a tremendous experience of worship for everyone uh, there weren't some who weren't able uh, we read here the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off their worship was a testimony to others and what others heard was not so much the singing, 
itself, but notice the joy of Jerusalem was heard. Fascinating, you know, it's not mentioned, well, we heard these cool songs and man, there was some really slick music going on and did you see that guy ripping it up on the lead guitar? You know, there was none of that. It was the joy, the joy of worship. Specifically, it was mentioned here, it was the joy of Jerusalem. There was a a, a joyful thing happening here uh, and that surely should be one of the aspects of worship. We often worry about what others might hear us singing, but what God wants to hear and what others should hear is not so much your singing, but your joy. At the same time, verse 44, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses for the offerings, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions specified by the law of the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites. And so, for the sake of time, I won't read the rest of that passage uh, <clears throat> down there to verse 47, but this was a day of giving. People brought these offerings, their first fruits, into the storehouses. Uh, the singers, the gatekeepers, that they um, had the charge of, of, of purification. Uh, it was consecrated holy things for the Levites, a day of consecration. Things were set apart interesting before we bring our material gifts to God we must also firstly bring ourselves to God Paul in 2nd Corinthians was uh, writing this he, he, he was talking about the the churches in Macedonia and he said in, in great trial and affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality the riches of their giving and he says I bear witness that that according to their ability and even beyond it, they gave with much urgency that we would receive the gift and fellowship of the ministering of saints. And then he went on to say this, And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. And see here Paul is commending the churches of Macedonia giving themselves to God first and I believe that's a picture of what's happening here those who were brought into this place of great worship uh, they had committed themselves to God and surely how can we truly be worshippers if we haven't done the same when God has the rightful place in our lives giving and worship become a natural response and so as we leave this scene as described in these chapters today we look back on a group of people A group of people who are praising and worshipping God, which was the result. You go back far enough, as we covered in the last few weeks, it was a result of hearing the word of God, the result of the inner working of the Holy Spirit, the the result of conviction of sin, and then practical changes they made to their lives. So I started out with the phrase, actions speak louder than words, made the actions of our lives. Not really need words, but that our lives and our actions, our behaviour, that they would speak for themselves, that they would speak a language that is consistent with the character and the nature of God who has saved us. I'll just close with this verse from, from Jesus. He quoted this in Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's not a works-based relationship. That's just a very practical way of saying Let your faith be seen in the way you live. May God help us to 
allow him to ask him and to give him the space in our lives to move us, to change us. The Lordship of Christ, may it impact us in how we live, how we speak, how we communicate with one another, our, our general attitude. May it be consistent uh, with the, 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 the Lord and the God who has saved us. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us, as James said, all the letters needed for life and godliness. So, Lord, today as we just reflect on all of that was happening in Jerusalem all those years ago, two and a half thousand odd years ago, but we also realise that the same thing happens today in our own hearts. May our hearts be stirred like it was for those folks as they heard the word of God, as, as, as your spirit took the truth and implanted it. it. It brought about a change, it brought about action. It brought about a, a, a life that reflected who you were and, and was honouring to you and Lord it brought about joy. So Father, may we just enter into this time today as we just can conclude in worship and as we go from this place, may we take with us a heart that is stirred at a heart of joy as we give thanks for what you have done. As we look up, there are so many things that can distract us and can discourage us if we look sideways. Lord, help us to have the right perspective, to have you front and centre in our lives. May we worship you and allow you to give us and equip us uh, with your presence, with your character in our lives, that we may negotiate the world and the pathways and the challenges around us in a way that speaks of your lordship over us. So, Father, we commit this day to you. Speak now, Lord, as we conclude this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we, and just uh, conclude in worship. And, and, and may the worship be with joy. Let's think of these folks singing. A whole lot of stuff going on, musical instruments. Hey, today we have an organ, not a Hammond. Uh, but the point is, we, we can worship God in the same spirit. Uh, let that be a spirit of joy this morning. Let's all stand.